This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles 26. We're going to talk about boy wonders here this morning. I want you to know by the time this one boy wonder was 18, he had already become a legend. He had believed what his mother had told him, and that was that he was a descendant of the mythic giant Hercules. His personal mentor growing up was Aristotle, and by 18 he was already captain of the king's army and was considered fearless in battle. He was a boy wonder. And the ancient world reveled in his legends. Fifteen years later, he was ruler of the world and worshipped as a god. Alexander the Great was his name. Mozart stunned the world and stunned the small city of Salzburg when at age four he had mastered the harpsichord. When he was age five, he was composing music. Really good music. I've stood in Schoenbrunn Palace in Vienna with its symbols of glittering extravagance and golden grandeur and marveled at the thought of a six-year-old Mozart giving a personal concert to the Vienna royalty, which is exactly what he did. He was a boy wonder. You know, today in America, we have our own boy wonder parading across our landscape. Only 21 years old, he has already electrified the sport of golf in which he is already considered the man. Tournaments in which he is playing sell twice as many tickets as the ones that he is not playing in. And why not? He is already winning most of them in spectacular fashion. Tiger Woods is in many ways not just a great golfer, but by 21, he has already in some ways transcended the sport of golf. You know, he's more now than a sports figure. In some way, he has become a social icon. He is a prefigurement in many people's minds of the new America. Overheated journalists have likened him to Gandhi and even Jesus. Earl Woods, Tiger's father, says he will change the course of humanity. And kids proclaim as they chant, I am Tiger Woods. I am Tiger Woods. I am Tiger Woods. Every generation has its boy wonders. And this morning, what I'd like to do as we begin this new series that we've entitled BC Stories for AD People, I would like to feature a boy wonder who is an Old Testament figure that you may have heard of only because of the time of Isaiah. You know that Isaiah heard the Lord in the reign of Uzziah when King Uzziah died. This morning, I want to look at him way before that event of his death. I want to go back all the way to his beginning, his reign in 780 B.C. And what you have before you in 2 Chronicles 26 is the life and story of King Uzziah. And I want you to notice as we begin to read his amazing beginning. You might look at verse 1. It says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. 
Uzziah was 16 years old. I guess they're making a point, right? When he became king and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Well, you see kind of a new beginning for this young man. And of course, the first thing that stands out about Uzziah, at least in this passage, is his age. He's 16 years old. And he inherits a kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel was the kingdom to the north who they were at this time in rivalry with. He inherited the kingdom of Judah during a very, very troubled time. You see, his father Amaziah, who's mentioned in this passage, had just been assassinated. So the kingdom was in turmoil. His nation had just suffered a humiliating defeat from the kingdom to the north Israel under the king Joash, who had slaughtered the armies of Judah, who had come in and robbed the temple treasury of all its gold and all its silver, and now the nation was absolutely bankrupt. Joash had torn down the walls of Jerusalem as he left to leave it defenseless to invading armies. And on top of all this, foreign armies like the Philistines and the Amorites had come in and occupied parts of Judah and claimed these lands as their own. Not exactly the best of circumstances for a 16-year-old, especially to inherit a kingdom that was as troubled as Judah. It would have been impossible odds except for the fact that this 16-year-old was a boy wonder. You see, Uzziah was a man, a young man, who had had a great beginning, at least from his parents. You know, most boy wonders, if you'll notice, have empowering parents. And Uzziah had that. You notice his mother's name is mentioned there in verse 3. Jechaliah, she was a godly woman who from his birth had pointed him to God. In fact, the name Uzziah means my strength is God. My strength is God. His father, for most of his reign, had set a good example for him. And like most sons, he got more from his dad's lifestyle than he did from his dad's lectures. And that's why you see verse 4 say, and he did ride in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. He followed his father's example. But Uzziah had one other invaluable asset. He had a godly mentor, this powerful godly man, a prophet of God, who poured godly things into his life. And I want, would like to stop here just for a moment and say, I am so thankful in this church for the men and women, some married, some single, who take the time to pour their lives into the young boys and girls in our learning center and to the teenagers, both boys and girls in our student ministries and add an additional asset to the assets they already have in growing up so they can be pointed to God. And I give thanks for that. And if you're looking for a cause, it would be a great cause for you to become a mentor to boys and girls and teenagers and students within our church. I can think of a few things that provide a better asset into life. And I want you to know Uzziah had that. And king, kids and kings all need Zacharias. And that's what he had 
And I want you to notice the impact of Zechariah and Uzziah's life. Look again at verse 5. It says, And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord with the encouragement of Zechariah, God prospered him. Zechariah appointed this boy wonder. Uzziah listened to his encouragement to look to God, and God prospered him. Now what follows in verses 16 through 15 are some of Uzziah's amazing achievements. I want you to notice first, look in verse 2. It mentions him rebuilding Eloth. That's really what he did. He had it for a time, but he went back and rebuilt it. He took it back. It was a very strategic, economic, and military seaport that was vital to Judah. And that feat is mentioned in verse 2 because it's lifted up as one of his major achievements at a young age. It's like winning the Masters by 12 strokes. Everybody gets excited. And here early in his reign, he takes back Eloth. And everybody gets excited because they know they've got a good king, a king whom God is with. But he does much more than that. If you'll notice in verse 6, he conquers the Philistines. In verse 8, he subdues the hated Amorites. Look at verse 9. He rebuilds and fortifies defenseless Jerusalem. In verses 10 and 11, Judah is prospered with his agricultural miracles. In verses 11 through 14, he reorganizes and re-energizes the military. When you get to verse 15, he's creating new weapons of war. And he uses those to extend Judah, Judah's borders even further than they originally were and to reclaim the land that these foreign countries have taken. He pulls off a national miracle. This is King Uzziah, boy wonder. And you come to the end of verse 15 and it says, for he was marvelously helped. And who was he helped by? By God. Uzziah, in many ways, fulfilled what it says in Proverbs 8, 14 and 15, where God is speaking and He says, counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding Power is mine, and by me, kings reign. Uzziah lived that kind of life. By him, God, Uzziah reigned in prosperity. Until we get to four words at the end of verse 15. It says, until he was strong. See, up to this time, things have gone good, really good. In fact, spectacular. But those last four words of verse 15, we begin to feel something ominous is about to occur. Until he was strong, that cast a dark shadow over what is now about to take place in the reign of King Uzziah. Because these four words predict and prepare us for a serious downturn, which I have called here Uzziah's heart attack because that's where the trouble Began. I want you to look at verse 16. It says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud, he acted corruptly. See the word proud there? It means to be lifted high. His heart was so lifted up, it got to be so high in his own mind that he acted corruptly. Listen, the higher the climb in life, 
the thinner the areas for moral integrity. Every one of us who are in business, in marriage, in sports, we all know that the climb to power, the higher you go, the thinner the areas for moral integrity. The higher the climb in life, the more dependent you are on moral oxygen for stability. That was the one glitch, the one Achilles heel in King Uzziah's life. You know, I remember uh, this last fall as a men's fraternity breakfast took place at the Holiday Inn, Doug Sherman shared a story about himself when he was a jet fighter pilot as he took off one day into the heavens. And he found himself suddenly overwhelmed by a sense of disorientation because of a failed oxygen system in the cockpit. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be flying at 25 or 35,000 feet near the speed of sound in a jet fighter, but with a failed oxygen system? The people on the ground would think, boy, look at the glory of that. But when you're in the, in the cockpit, gasping for breath, hallucinating, moving in and out of consciousness, and with slurred speech and thick tongue, trying to radio back to the tower for help, the word glorious is not the word you would choose. It was anything but glorious. But you know what? That is what altitude in any walk of life can do to us without moral oxygen. It can disorient us. It can cause us to be so lifted up that we begin to think things that are not true. We begin to fantasize and hallucinate about ourselves and about our circumstances that cause us to do things that people standing around us would look at and say, is he mad? Is he crazy? That's ridiculous. But you know, prosperity and the thin air of altitude has that effect on people. And there are no more numbers to cite than we could ever talk about here today. I remember sitting with Peter Drucker, that great Renaissance thinker, at a dinner one night, and he said this. He said, you know, as I've looked over the history of man, I've come to one conclusion. Prosperity has rarely been good for us. Isn't that a great statement? And it's so true. Oswald Sanders said it this way, while adversity has slain its thousands, prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. Prosperity can have a devastating effect on us. Now, that, is that because prosperity is bad? Is it wrong to prosper? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. It's just that the air is thin up there. That's the problem. It comes with a lot of challenges, and without life support, there can be tragic consequences. You know, Doug Sherman thankfully made it to the ground. Unfortunately, Uzziah, whose name meant, my strength is God, he didn't make it. Somewhere in Uzziah's steep climb into fame, he believed he no longer needed Zechariah's godly assistance. Somewhere in Uzziah's steep climb into fame, he began to think that he no longer needed to seek God. Somewhere in that steep climb into fame, he was seduced by his own successes. 
Remember Dick Morris, the advisor to President Clinton? Remember how he rocketed into fame? His picture on the cover of Time magazine, and yet that precipitous fall just several weeks later when he was caught on camera in his adulterous affair. In a subsequent interview, he made this candid admission that if we were interviewing Uzziah, would have been Uzziah's very words. Listen to what Dick Morris said about his life, and I'm quoting here. He said this, I was infatuated with the power I had, but with this power, my sense of reality was altered. I started out being excited, just working for the president. Then I became arrogant. Then I became grandiose. The rules no longer applied to me. And then I became self-destructive. Do you hear the progression? Young man starts out in business and he's just excited to have a job. But then he makes the climb higher and higher and then he becomes arrogant. In time, he becomes grandiose. And now as the president of the company, he believes that the rules no longer apply to himself. And then in that dis orienting, dysfunctional, hallucinating state, he becomes self-destructive. Men and women do that in business. Men and women do that in marriage. Men and women do that in sports. Prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. The rules don't apply to me. You know, that is almost the national anthem of America. The rules don't apply to me. English historian Paul Johnson, who is the author of the bestseller Modern Times and considered really by many today to be the preeminent historian of the world, makes this candid remark. He says, moral relativism has been the cardinal sin of the 20th century. It is the reason why this century has been such a destructive epoch, maybe the most, in human history. So let me ask you a profound question, because this is a BC story that has AD relevance. Do the rules apply to you? Do they? When you look at this book, is it a pick and choose experience? Or do you look at this in a sense of awesomeness? That something bigger than you is here and within here. And your submission to that over the course of a lifetime is absolutely life support if you are to start well and finish well. Do the rules apply to you? If we could lay the rules over your life, are there places where you have just come to a conclusion and people do this? It is in the wickedness of our own heart to go through the Christian experience and have certain things that we struggle with from time to time and we come to the place where we say, you know, I'm just going to give up the fight and do what I want to do. And we box that over there and continue to play Christianity with these occupied territories given to the enemy. And we think we can do that and juggle those two worlds at some place because we've learned enough of the language and experienced enough of the life to think in our arrogance that the rules of marriage, of giving, of sacrifice, of service, 
don't apply to us anymore in those particular areas. And when we do that, we don't become more godly. We become a Uzziah. And you know what ultimately happens in that balancing act where we think we can handle that? Where we can think we can sneak off and do this and not get caught? Where we can hide things in our heart and not be exposed? As we climb higher and higher, that disorientation sets in. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to us, we do something so ridiculous in our arrogance, so irrational in our lifestyle that people whisper in corners and say, what happened to John? Can you believe he did that? You know, that's exactly what happened to Uzziah with prosperity everywhere before him, with great armies, with great agriculture, with great cities, with a great capital and a great kingdom. Suddenly, his heart was lifted so high that he goes off and he does something in a moment that is absolutely irrational. I call it an act of irrational arrogance. And people around him thought he was crazy. Look at what he did starting in verse 16. He does this. He says, when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. How? Well, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on, on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah, the king, and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. Who are you to tell me what to do? Haven't I been good for Israel? Haven't I done great works? Haven't I restored your prosperity? Who are you to hold me accountable? And yet, the Word of God in Numbers expressly prohibits anyone other than the priesthood of Aaron from entering the holy place and performing any acts of service such as burning incense. The office of king and priest in Israel were to remain separate until the coming of Messiah, when only he would join them into one office. And yet, Uzziah is now above the rules. Godly counsel and the rebuke of godly priests, and let me tell you, they were risking their life to stand up to him, was of no effect. He suffered from his own messianic complex. You see, he came to the place where being king was not enough. He wanted to be like the pagan kings who were both kings and high priests. He wanted to be everything for the people, everything for them. So they would not only look to him like they looked to Alexander the Great as king, but they would worship him. And despite the pleas of the priest, he went ahead and did what he wanted to do. His, his heart, his arrogant heart had convinced him that he could presume upon God and actually lift himself high enough to dialogue with God about what the rules should be. Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever in the secrecy of your own heart had a particular issue that no matter what the Word of God expressly said, you are going to dialogue with God about whether it's right or not? That's what Uzziah did. He decided to rewrite the rules. You know, you can always tell when someone has reached this stage of Uzziah's arrogance. I'm glad to say I haven't had this experience often in my tenure of 17 years here at Fellowship, but I have had a few, where a person is confronted with the clear teaching of Scripture, not by one person, but by many people, sometimes by the whole church. And you lay out the clear teaching of the Word of God, and you know what they say? That's just your interpretation. Live together? Wrong? That's just your interpretation. I can't have premarital sex? That's just your interpretation. Where in the Bible does it say that? I shouldn't marry an unbeliever? That's just your interpretation. I need accountability? That's just your interpretation. When that kind of arrogance, the arrogance of Uzziah, blows strong in a person's life, it has devastating consequences. And I want you to know it had devastating consequences to Uzziah. Look at verse 19 again. It says he's enraged now. He thinks no one can hold him accountable. And while he is enraged with the priest, it says leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest and the house of God besides the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And behold, he was leprous on his forehead and they hurried him out of there. They didn't have to hurry him out of there. Notice the next line it says, Uzziah himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, is written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. In other words, they didn't bury him in the tombs of the kings. They buried him in a field close to the kings. But they had to keep him separate. Why? Because they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. Now, if you look back over what I just read, you'll see three very clear consequences of Uzziah's irrational act of arrogance. And let me tell you, before we go into this, I just want to tell you, everything that happens to him happens to us. This is not Old Testament. This is an A.D. reality. It happens to us just like it happens to him. Same consequences, and I have seen it with my own eyes. When you lift yourself up against God, when you think you're as big as God and you don't need the moral oxygen of God. What are the three consequences? First is this, he was struck by illness. He's struck by illness. In his case, it was leprosy. In our case, it may be depression. It may be ulcers. It may be sexually transmitted diseases, heart attacks, mental breakdowns, rashes, chronic fatigue, even death. Now, let me say as I say that, is all illness the result of sin? No. Scripture tells us we live in a fallen world 
And part of being in a fallen world that one day will be claimed by God is that one day all of us will be sick. But listen, as much as the Scripture says all illness is not the result of sin, it does say that some of it is. And you can ask any physician who deals with people on a day-to-day -day basis, as I have, and they will tell you much of what they see that drives people into illness and even death is not because they live in this life, but it's because of personal lifestyle choices which turn and bite them because they're wrong and they're arrogant and they're sinful. God is still judging arrogance and sin. He's still judging it with disease. Don't let this pass you by and think that was just some extraordinary event in the Old Testament. Secondly, Uzziah was cursed with an awkward loneliness. An awkward loneliness. Notice his leprosy cut him off from the people and the companionships that he had once so enjoyed. And I want you to know again, this is so clear to me. People writing their own spiritual rules suffer the same fate inevitably. Their moral arrogance doesn't increase intimacy or encourage relationships. It destroys them. It drives them away from good and godly people and it drives good and godly people away from them. And what is created in that vacuum as people pull back from them, as they continue to act irrationally, as they continue to arrogantly plod their own way, writing their own rules, as people move further and further away, just like a leper, and they find themselves cursed in this awkward loneliness. The dialogue is stifled. Everything now becomes superficial. How you doing? Fine. Can't go any further. Can't ask any other questions because you'll incite, so you withdraw. You see, they no longer fit in anymore. And Uzziah no longer fit in anymore. He was cursed with an awkward loneliness. Notice the third consequence. Uzziah lost his good name. 52 years he reigned as king. For most of that, People thought he was great. And you know, he could have ended great. In fact, he could have ended with a tombstone, probably in the graveyard of the kings, as big or bigger than all the rest. But instead, he ended up in a field away from the tombs. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. This boy wonder, who had risen to amazing heights of fame, found that in the end, no one thought of him as a king. You know, it's amazing how all your achievements can be wiped away with one irrational act of arrogance, isn't it? In fact, if you'll look at verse 23, when it comes to the end, how is Isaiah, I mean, Uzziah known? Uzziah is known not as a king, for they said he is a leper. That's how he was remembered. He is a leper. Not all the kingdoms he took back, not all the cities he built, not all the agricultural products he developed. His legacy, his name, 
He's a leper. Would you like to see the life of Uzziah played out in the American theater? Then you don't have to go any further than the 1976 Ladies Home Journal poll of teenage boys and girls as to who they most looked up to and admired. You know who was in the number three position for the girls and guys? For the girls, it was Robert Redford. For the boys, it was Chris Everett, a great tennis player. How about in the number two position? For the girls, it was Neil Armstrong, the astronaut. For the boys, it was Elton John. But you know, interestingly and curiously, the one teenage boys and girls most admired across the United States in 1976 was the same person. You know who the same person was? O.J. Simpson. That is why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. You can never get too high where you don't need God. And men and women, and especially young men and women, let me just tell you, you can save yourself a millennium of heartache if you will just simply understand a simple truth. God's rules break you more than you break God's rules. They will break you. You will never get to a place where you're so slick that you cannot live by His rules. Because in the end, God is God and you're not. Well, Uzziah's heart failed him. But it doesn't have to be that way to us. And so I'd like to end by just giving you three absolutes for you to consider. And if you are smart, to live by. In fact, what I'd like to call them is three absolutes that are heart smart. They're the kind of things that if you were going off for a long journey and I would never see you again, and I just had a few things to tell you. In looking at this passage, I'd say, listen, if, if you don't hear anything else, Remember these things. Embrace these things. Realize that these things, more than power, riches, fame, and achievement, these things are the place of safety. They will protect you. They will honor you. And ultimately, they will prosper you. These would be the things. Here's the first absolute. It's foolish to think that external achievements can make for a successful life without the balance of internal achievements. If you don't believe this, ask Richard Nixon, or ask Pete Rose, or ask Howard Hughes, or ask Kurt Corbain. Each person in life, each person, every man and woman has two worlds to conquer to be a success. The external world that are my interests and I want to be good at them, and the internal world called my integrity, and I better be good at that. If you are beating the competition, but you are not beating impurity or slothfulness and deceit and pride and greed at the same level, then I want you to know you are not becoming a success. You are in danger of becoming a Uzziah. If you are winning awards and titles and positions of power, but you are not winning at repentance and confession 
and submission to God's authority, then you may be offering the world a host of great works, but you are offering to those who are close to you and to God an ugly life. And they will see it. And you will not hear it because the Proverbs say, a rich man's home is his fortress. He runs into it and protects himself with his achievements and awards and money. And he can't hear anymore, but he acts irrational. But his wife sees his ugly life, or he sees hers and the children and the close friends. They all see it, but you can't see it anymore because you're off the oxygen. When I was in high school, one of the things that they used to do was take us out to these two ropes. They hung 30, 35 feet high, you know, big thick ropes. And when you were a freshman, one of the things you're supposed to do is see if you could work up enough strength to climb to the top of that rope. And of course, you can imagine a few freshmen dangling about a third or the fourth of the way through, then they would have to come down. But it was the goal of every young guy there to one day be able to climb the rope all the way to the top. But you know what the studs really did? The guys who were the real successes would one day come and they would stand out there in front of all those freshmen and sophomores and they would grab one rope in one hand and run rope in the other and they would go all the way to the top. And you know, I thought, what a physical picture of what I'm talking about here today. Because you know what? Real success in life is a climb with two ropes. The external world of success and the internal world of significance. And as you reach for one, you've got to reach for the other because you'll never make it to the top successfully without both ropes. This is what Uzziah missed. This is what he didn't understand. This is what he came to a place where he wouldn't hear anymore. He thought that life was on the external only, especially when he got so strong. Some of you are here today and you are so strong and so impervious to counsel that you're considering things that in another day at another time you would have looked at and said was absolutely ridiculous. But you're considering it right now. Don't make Uzziah's mistake. Put the oxygen mask on. Remember, external achievements must be balanced by internal ones. Secondly, real life is not in how fast you start, but in how well you finish. And finishing well is no accident. Finishing well is a passionate, intentional pursuit. It's knowing and envisioning how you want to end up this life and in working and praying to get there. And by God's grace, you will. And so let me ask you, do you have a clear vision of how you want to finish this life? If today was your funeral, do you know what you would want to be said for you? What positive impact you would have wanted to make? What contribution you would have wanted to contribute? And what legacy you would have wanted to leave that your friends would be glorying in as they walked out of the service? Is that clear to you? Did you know that as I've talked to people in our church and around our world, most people do not think that way. For some reason, they avoid thinking that way. They live without the end in mind. It's more que sera, sera, live and let live. But what a major mistake that is because you need to intentionally invest the sacred trust God has given you. And you know what he's given you? Do you know? 
He's given you a life. That's what he's given you. And he's wanting you to invest it in a way that when you finish, glory to God. That's what he wants. You know, I want to show you the most exciting moment in my life this year. It has not been I-square in the sense of the vision. It's not been the money that's poured in. It's not been a lot of the things that have happened this year that I could get excited about. It's this right here. Right there. You know what that is? Right there is the thing that will make our church. That is 270 manhood plans where men painfully climbed a mountain, some of them better than others, but they decided that they would look at their life, not just live with their head down, make sense of their past, think about their present, and decide how they want it to end up, and then type it up, give it to other men, and show it to me. And I want you to know, I am more proud of that than anything that happened this year. That is success. That really is, that's success. Real life is not in how fast you start. It's not. It's how well you finish. And then lastly, I want you to know Uzziah's life shouts a question and then answers it. Can man live well without God? <laughs> Can he? And of course the answer is no. But heart smart people will not just hear it. They will really, really believe it. They will believe it is the natural law of life. You know, we have had an amazing 20th century. We're about to wrap this century up. And I believe that this century, the 20th century, will shout this truth as loud as Uzziah's life. The 20th century, I believe, will go down as exhibit A of man's utter failure to achieve when he trusts in himself. And it will be a terrible case study in the exaltation of man. 100 years ago, when we were about to enter this century, I want you to know that there were intellectuals who were convinced that we were about to outgrow God. Friedrich Nietzsche, who was the German philosopher, said God was now dead. God was dead. That's how we would enter the 20th century. Charles Darwin and his evolutionary theories convinced many that we would soon evolve past our primal need for God. We would get over it as we ascended the evolutionary ladder. The extraordinary industrial age and revolution that was sweeping the world promised us wonders and technology that would replace God. And with faith in science as we entered the 20th century, with faith in technology, man would be able to go into the next millennium alone and bring in his own utopia. Did you know people really believed that? They were deeply convinced of that as they entered our century. And so what have we learned in 100 years of man-centeredness? Well, in our century, we have witnessed an attempt to construct a master race of people who would worship themselves rather than God. But the worship of Hitler's Third Reich did not produce prosperity. It left 55 million people dead and unheard of misery. We have witnessed communism's atheistic approach to eradicate God altogether, and it did even worse. It cost us 100 million lives, and today it declares its whimpering glory in two very pathetic 
countries, North Korea and Cuba. We have witnessed Western democracies' acceptance of an offer of science and technology as a substitute for God. And these things have indeed created a higher standard of living, but with it we have accepted in our unbelief a lower standard of lifestyle. And today, 100 years later, we are cruder, we are more violent, more selfish, less religious, more perverse, more addicted, more family unfriendly, and fatter than they were 100 years ago when they entered the century. That's us with 100 years of belief that we could substitute God for science and technology. The 20th century proclaims loud and clear that man cannot live well without God. You know, I'd like to read in closing a comment by Paul Johnson in his book, The Historian, that I mentioned to you at the beginning of this message. He says this as a historian, sometimes even more remarkable than historical events are historical non-events. What matters in history is not always what actually happens, but what obstinately fails to happen. The 20th century is a case in point. In fact, it's a prime example. Immense events took place during it, events to make us marvel and shudder. But from one perspective, my historical perspective, the most extraordinary thing about the 20th century was this, the failure of God to die. Somehow, God survived. And now, at the end of the 20th century, the idea of a personal living God is as lively now and real as it ever was. You know, God will never perish. But the question of man, of your life, is still open. Two things for you to remember. Don't be a Uzziah. And remember, put your faith in God all the way to the end. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this remarkable story with remarkable relevance in a remarkable time. And we give you glory because without you, we are nothing. Jesus told us that he was the vine and we were merely branches. Help us to keep that perspective and help our heart never to be so lifted up that we think that we can rewrite the rules. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.